Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... What's probably even more important than patience is adaptability. Because monetary policy has these sort of time-varying effects on the economy. Sometimes Fed policy really does bite. Skanda Amarnath on how monetary policy works, what it cannot fix, and why nobody gets it. If I had to choose the economic topic where there's the biggest gap between how important it is in all our lives and how well people understand it, I would pick monetary policy. And yes, monetary policy is inherently complicated and technical, but the truth is, it's not just the public that struggles to grasp how it works. The experts, and even the people who actually are responsible for conducting monetary policy, they themselves have fierce debates over how it works. And right now, there is very high inflation in lots of countries throughout the world, and that includes the U.S., of course where by one measure, it's up around 9% a year, the highest in four decades. And so a lot of economists have been calling for the Federal Reserve, the Fed, the U.S. Central Bank, which controls monetary policy. They're calling on the Fed to lower inflation by raising interest rates aggressively, steeply, quickly. And in fact, it has been doing that because that's how monetary policy works. By raising interest rates, The Fed can make it more expensive for businesses and households to borrow money and therefore spend money. And with less spending, you get less inflation. Or is that how monetary policy works? Actually, that's just one of several theories. And in fact, there's also a lot of theories for what drives inflation in the first place, which would be helpful to understand if you want to design monetary policy to lower inflation or even to understand how much monetary policy can even do to slow inflation. So just to speak for myself here, inflation and monetary policy are topics where the more I learn, the more I study them, the less certain I become about how they really function. Today's guest is Skanda Amarnath. Skanda is the executive director of Employ America, which is an organization that advocates for full employment in the economy. Skanda previously worked as a markets economist and analyst at a hedge fund, and he's long been one of my favorite analysts and writers about economic policymaking. He recently published a research note where he teases out what monetary policy can do about inflation and what its limitations are. He's a really detailed and subtle thinker, which really comes through in our chat. And I wanted to have this conversation with him, not so that listeners would necessarily agree with him or with me, but just so that you could see how many complications and nuances you sometimes have to confront when you try to understand how inflation and monetary policy actually behave. Here it is. Skanda, hey man. Thanks for having me. When I go to the website for Employ America, where you're the executive director, there's this big sign that says something like, we are all about full employment. And I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. The Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. It has two mandates. One is that it's supposed to keep inflation relatively low and stable, and it tries to keep inflation at just about 2% a year so that the prices of the things that we buy go up by just about 2% a year. That's the target. And the other mandate is called maximum employment, or as you and many others like to call it, full employment. 
But this is a little bit trickier to define, and there's not a precise target for full employment like there is for inflation with 2%. So when you say that Employ America is all about full employment, how are you defining it? Full employment as a concept is meant to encapsulate, I would at least say, two facts, but probably more. And because this is so multidimensional, it ends up being something that you have to accommodate some level of ambiguity, some level of flexibility. So two things that are very obvious, employment and wages, right? The ability to bargain for an increase is pretty important for judging that. And the ability to be employed as a society that people are broadly able to participate if they want to. Yeah, if people uh, want a job, they are able to actually get a job. Yeah, and ideally, these are jobs that are meaningfully the exercise of people's own capacities. These are people who are, if they've learned a set of skills, they're able to actually exercise those set of skills. Not just any job, but you're able to get a good job that's a decent fit for your skill set. Yes. Okay. So I think that's there are qualitative aspects to this, which makes it a little more amorphous and ambiguous. Sure. And the precise level of employment where we say we have fully employed the economy, I suspect if you look at across countries, there's no stable place where that will always be true. Some countries are able to employ more people than the U.S. prime age workers. So if we adjust for the aging of the population, which I know is a little technical, but it's a good thing to do, you'll find that the U.S. tends to have lower employment than most advanced economies. So that's one way to sort of benchmark, are we really at full employment? But it may vary country by country. So there is like a number of different judgments. I would say employment and wages should be two big parts of that sure. assessment. I would not say it's exclusive. I think it also should change over time. What does it mean for people to be able to meaningfully interact with the economic structures that exist. And you mentioned the bargaining power of workers. This is important to understand because it gets at what is perceived to be the trade-off between a really robust labor market where a lot of people are employed versus inflation. So the thinking traditionally has been that if you have a really strong labor market and it gets to the point where companies really are desperate to hire workers because so many workers are already employed at other companies. They'll start offering higher wages to try to attract those workers. And at some point, the thinking goes again, that if companies need to start paying much higher wages, then they'll also raise the prices of the goods that they sell so that they can bring in more income to pay those workers those higher wages, okay? This is something that's come under a lot of scrutiny, this relationship in the last few years, certainly, maybe even in the last decade or so. But that is sort of what's understood to be the relationship, that if the labor market gets to the point where it is so strong that companies are really hiking up wages, that that will also lead to higher inflation of the goods and the services that we buy. Is that roughly uh, how you understand this historical perception? Yeah, so I think this is a at least a one set of conventional wisdoms about how there's a scarcity of labor that translates into a certain type of wage increases. I will dispute some of this stuff, I would say, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it is a common conventional wisdom. And then there's a causal mechanism of if I'm raising wages and I'm a firm, I'm going to raise prices subsequently and therefore effectively, like in some grand sense, offset that wage increase right. for the individual to your, worker. To keep your profits high if you're keep a Keep your profits high right. and it keeps your, there's a net real wage effect, I guess, from your prices of your goods going up. And if other firms do the same, then that's more inflation. That's kind of the causal story that's told. Okay. Um, it's a wage cost push. So if your labor costs are going up, then firms see that and feel like they need to raise the prices of those same goods even higher or the, of the same rate. And that's a story for how inflation emerges and 
in some cases, that's an argument for why it's going to persist. Yeah. Um, that's the causal story. Okay. I bring that up because that is just one theory of what causes inflation, but there's a whole bunch of others. And this is going to take a second, but I actually want to list some of them here. And we're not going to like sort out whether each of these theories is right or wrong or partially right or partially wrong. I actually just want to give listeners some sense of how complicated this can be. Understanding inflation is really hard, partly because you're dealing with so many theories. So here's just a quick and and somewhat random list, okay? So another theory of inflation is that it's caused by the government spending too much money on the economy. So this is fiscal policy, not monetary policy. The government, Congress, and the president passing bills that do things like increase unemployment benefits or spend money on building roads or giving people tax cuts, whatever. And if it does a lot of that, if the government does a lot of that, then it stimulates demand in the economy. And if it overstimulates the economy, you get inflation. And in fact, many people right now do blame the current inflation on the bills that were passed under both Presidents Trump and Biden for injecting too much demand into the economy. So that's another theory. The next theory does blame monetary policy. It blames the Fed for basically keeping interest rates too low. And that stimulates the economy because when interest rates are low, it's cheaper for people and for businesses to borrow money and spend that money. And that, too, can stimulate the economy and it can overstimulate the economy. So that's another theory. The next theory is that inflation is caused by shocks to the supply of certain goods. So, for example... We have a war right now between Ukraine and Russia that has led to a shortfall in the supply of oil. So then gas prices can go up because you need oil to make gas and there's not enough oil. Okay, and there's other shortages as well caused by that war and by other shocks. And so that's another theory. Then there's theories that kind of combine some of these previous theories, like saying the money supply went up. And so now there's too much money chasing too few goods. Or the idea that inflation expectations can lead to inflation itself. So like if you think that inflation is going to go way up and you're a business and you think that your competitors are going to raise their prices, you'll then raise your prices just to keep up. And in doing that, you're contributing to the higher inflation that you expected. All right. I'm going to actually stop right there because that's that's plenty of theories. Uh, And maybe it's some of the above theories. Maybe it's all of the above theories that are right. It's all quite complex. So. Let me ask you this question. How do you even approach a situation like this where we have high inflation now, we have all these different theories for what causes it, we have all these different theories for the respective roles of monetary policy, fiscal policy, other policies, whatever. What do you do just to start trying to figure out what's going on? I think these are all theories that if you really strain, you can always in some way justify them. All of them sort of have a story that if you strain, is it theoretically possible in some world? Yes. But for all of these stories, how do we actually go about validating them? I think one thing that we could do more of as like uh, people who are interested in macroeconomics, and people like to say, I'm doing macro, not micro. I'm doing the big picture stuff, the things that affect like these big things like monetary policy, fiscal policy, big aggregates. That's what matters. How do those stories line up with the micro of current inflation? So we have a lot of inflation now. It's across a number of sectors, but there are more sectors where we see it. If you were to be able to describe at that industrial level 
why these firms raised prices, right? Especially in the areas that really matter. There are some key sectors that have mattered for the last 12 months. One of them being automobiles, another one being energy, to some extent food. There's some services that have mattered. When you look through those, you can probably see glimpses in some cases of strong demand playing a role. In some cases, you can see that supply was lost and we can at least start to pin down if demand was strong, where was that demand funded? Was that demand funded through people's stimulus checks? Was it because they borrowed money because the Federal Reserve had lower interest rates? Was it because um, they just had more money to begin with and they felt like spending more because it was a pandemic and they Maybe wanted they were making spend. more money at their jobs. Yeah, they may making more money at their jobs. It was also like their paychecks. That, that also matters, right? Yeah. And so there's a way a macro and micro don't talk to each other because they sort of see themselves like church and state almost of a separation. But on the other hand... Micro can give ways of validating and falsifying certain macro stories. And that, I think, is probably one underrated way we can at least start to have a dialogue about what really matters. How much does this particular phenomenon explain? And I think you'll see that some stories hold up better than others. I bring this up because there is what I consider to be a quite astonishing line in a recent paper that you just finished and that you published at Employee America. Here's what you write, which I think is great. Analyses both inside and outside the Fed have acknowledged that the central bank lacks a working model of inflation and that inflation readings can be driven by factors largely outside the Fed's influence over the business cycle, unquote. The first part of that is a striking thing to write, that analyses both inside and outside the Fed say that the Fed itself doesn't have a great working model of inflation. And I think people are going to hear that and be like, well, the Fed's in charge of inflation. They don't know how it works. Yeah, it's actually a pretty complex beast. I think that there are certain theories that the Fed has tried to model inflation after and have generally been left wanting even before this episode of inflation we've seen over the last 18 months. This this includes some of the theories that I just laid out here? That's right. And I think that they have tried to shoehorn certain ideas, and sometimes they work a little bit better. But generally speaking, they have found themselves trying to see when do we get the point where we get price increases in this way that we were expecting. And I think that's actually proven to be a lot more difficult for the Fed. It's funny you bring up the sort of everyone assumes the Fed controls inflation, right? And it's, I think, two parts of that sort of drive that view. One, Congress passed a law in 1978, I think, and said, you're responsible for that dual mandate of maximum employment and stable prices. That's your objective. Your objective is to balance those two weighty goals. So you think people got the impression then from that law that the Fed then is the only thing that influences inflation? That, or that, the, yeah, the Fed is the ultimate arbiter. And the second thing is Milton Friedman's aphorism, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which has led to the linkage of the Fed and its ability to affect the economy being the primary, and some might say exclusive, domain for inflation management. I should say, by the way, that there's something else interesting about that aphorism from economist Milton Friedman. As listeners of this podcast will know, he was this hugely influential economist in the latter half of the 20th century. And Friedman had some fairly nuanced and I would say even sophisticated views and ideas 
about inflation and monetary policy that I kind of think a lot of his modern critics forget. And these aren't ideas that I necessarily agree with, but I do think that it's actually that phrase, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It's that phrase that influenced people the most just because it's so quick and catchy and not his technical work on monetary policy. And I'm just always intrigued by ways in which language can influence people's understanding of something. Now, I happen to think that the Fed does have a lot of influence over inflation. I just don't think it's the only thing that influences inflation. Uh, I also think that's a great place to now start moving on to your research note, because that's a point that you also arrive at. So first of all, the title of this note is, what are you expecting how the Fed slows down inflation through the labor market. And you do something kind of interesting here. You start by looking at the things that people spend their money on, so the goods and services that people spend their money on and whose prices tend to fluctuate the most according to the business cycle. So, like, if the economy is doing really well, these are the things that people spend money on and whose prices go up by a lot. Uh, And then conversely, of course, if the economy is struggling, it is the prices of these same specific goods that tend to go down a lot. They're the, the most cyclical. So in other words, these are the goods that have the biggest inflationary response to the economy going up or down. So let's start there. Uh, take us through what you found. Sure. So we cite this paper by James Stock and Mark Watson that finds that the prices that are most reliably sensitive to the business cycle are food and in particular, rent. Two really important categories, by the way, food and rent. I mean, you know, if you're a renter, you can't avoid those two costs. That's right. These two things are actually most disproportionately part of the budgets of people who have lower incomes, right? So these people typically won't have big portfolios, won't have- Not a lot of savings Not either. a lot of savings, yeah. not a lot of like household wealth. And obviously they, are, they don't own a house, they're renting. And so <laughs> rent, rent plus food- are the most demand-sensitive, if you think about the business cycle, as the variation in demand. So when the economy is going well and people have a lot of money to spend versus when the economy is in recession or close to recession and people are slowing down their spending or contracting their spending, we see that those prices are the ones that are most reliable. And that tells us something interesting, right? Because it actually said food and rent are not funded by asset prices and wealth. It's not funded by borrowing. It's typically funded by your paycheck if you're earning a paycheck. Or if you are not earning a paycheck, you have much more limited options and you're probably more careful about how you spend on food and probably how much you spend even on rent. This is fascinating, by the way, because of the next thing that you conclude, which is that if we know that the most demand-sensitive items that are driving inflation are themselves mainly driven by how much money people are making, then the question to ask next is, well, how does the Federal Reserve affect how much money people are making at their jobs, right? Is that, is that the, the logical conclusion, the logical next thing to ask? That's precisely right. How is the Federal Reserve affecting the funding source for your food expenditures, your rent expenditures? And I noticed I had rent expenditures, so it's not a mortgage rate that matters. It must be your actual labor income that matters. And so how does the Fed affect that? The intermediating dynamic is financial conditions. It's that the Fed's influencing a series of asset prices, sometimes more reliably, sometimes- Like stock prices, bond prices, things like that. Yeah. The the Fed has some pretty reliable impacts on bond prices, has some variable impacts on stock prices. And when stock prices and bond prices and these whole conditions sort of reflect a certain 
risk preference. Sometimes people are really risk-seeking. Some people sometimes people are really scared and panicky. It also translates into labor market dynamics. It matters for the willingness to hire, the willingness to give a raise, the eagerness to lay off workers. That's yeah. the connection that matters. Yeah, let me stop to elaborate on what you just said there. The, the Fed, by changing interest rates and by announcing what it's going to do with interest rates in the future, can end up having a big immediate effect on stock prices and bond prices. And the decisions that businesses make for how to spend their money are influenced by what's happening in the stock market and the bond market. So if those markets are going down, businesses might choose not to spend as much money. So maybe not to invest as much in new buildings or equipment, but also not to spend as much money hiring people or giving people raises. And so therefore, it'll affect how much money people make. That's exactly right, because the business's willingness to spend on workers is how a set of financial conditions that really affect businesses ultimately shapes household demand, right? Because if we're talking about inflation in terms of price inflation, that's that interaction between businesses and what they can supply and what households are willing to spend. And so if households are willing to spend, they must have gotten their money from somewhere. How are they getting that money most of the time? In terms of food and rent, we're really talking about something that's probably funded through labor income. And where's that labor income going to be sourced? That means a business made a decision to hire, to give a raise, or to lay off, or to try to find ways to consolidate labor income. One thing that's interesting here is that you don't put as much emphasis on how households make decisions in response to the Fed and, and how that might affect inflation. This is a little bit surprising because, for example, the Fed is right now raising interest rates. And so correspondingly, mortgage rates have gone up at the same time. The idea there is that fewer people will now want to buy houses. That's right. And I think that is a totally legit mechanism for how it influences activity in the economy. It influences housing activity in the economy, and specifically investment, residential fixed investment. That's, I think, a pretty well understood and pretty unobjectionable mechanism. But how does that influence consumer prices? Right? Like, How does that actually influence like the cost of rent? How does that influence my willingness to pay for um, a, rented, a unit that's up for rent when mortgage rates are actually about home ownership, right? So it's possible that maybe home ownership leads me to consume more appliances or tools. Furniture, cars, yeah. that kind of thing. I think that's a, that's a totally legit maximum. It just also kind of divorced from the stock Watson analysis, which is those categories are not the cyclically sensitive stuff in mm-hmm. quite the same way. I suspect it'll probably, the Fed is hiking right now. I suspect it will have some effects on prices for those particularly housing attached durable goods, call it. But if we're trying to come up with an explanation for how the Fed, let's say, reduces the amount of income in the economy is on slowing demand or trying to solve inflation from the demand side. That's what the Fed does. That's what people say. And I think I agree with that. But we have to be able to say, what's the demand side? How is it actually influencing inflation? Mm -hmm. Right. And that has to come back again. It all all roads lead back to the labor market and how that funding source is important for food and rent in particular, I'd say, because that's the place where they get the most reliable traction. It's possible the economic structure of the economy is changing over time and ways that the Fed has more effects on other prices. But at least from the analysis we have and what we can say with some confidence, your story about the Fed should be a story about how that influences the labor market and inflation. And I would caution that because home prices are not part of consumer price index, that story should not really be about even mortgage rates directly. One of the reasons that this finding is so interesting to me is that we have spent part of this conversation talking about other theories of inflation that may not hold up. 
But your conclusion is essentially that one of the original understandings of inflation does hold up, which is that there is a relationship between how employment is doing and inflation in the economy, right? Because if what the Fed is doing is influencing the labor market and it is fluctuations in the labor market that lead to fluctuations in inflation, then that basic relationship seems to exist. So it seems like the Fed, as it is believed to operate, kind of gets that part right. I think it's like half true, right? That there is a trade-off in terms of the larger volume of job growth or the larger volume of wage growth. That is, if you believe that people who earn paychecks and their consumptions tend to correlate to their paychecks, especially if it's your permanent income in terms of, I get a job, I know I'm going to be making this amount of money, I'm going to set my budget somewhat accordingly to it. I'm not going to spend all of it if I don't have to, but I will spend something correlated to it. Yes, under the right conditions, when the labor market is doing really well, it does translate into inflation. But it's not as simple as that. There are a lot of nuances involved here, right? Yeah, there are a lot of nuances to that particular mechanism. And then there are other causes of inflation itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Inflation is not just the labor market. And that's part of what- And therefore not just the Fed. It's not just about the labor market. It's not just about the Fed itself, right? That's a part that I want to be also equally clear about because- If you think about the volatility in gasoline prices, that is a big explanation for why inflation is where it is. And it's not really a story about the labor market, not not the U.S. labor market. You can tell a small story about labor markets mattering for how we produce oil in the U.S. It's not the main story. I have a question about energy prices in particular. One theory for how energy prices affect inflation and everything else is that Well, energy prices are a cost of making everything else, right? So that if you have very high energy prices, then that might lead to higher inflation in other goods because it is one of the things that's necessary to make those other goods. The other theory is that, well, when energy prices are high, people still have to spend that extra amount of money on energy because, for example, if you need to heat your home in the winter, right, that costs a certain amount. And if that cost goes way up, well, you still need to heat your home or your kids are going to freeze to death, right? And so therefore, you end up spending more on heating your home and you have less money to spend on everything else. And if you're spending less money on everything else, that would lower the cost of everything else. It'd be disinflationary or even deflationary for everything else. I don't really have like a strong view on this either. I'm kind of curious to know what your thoughts are on like what happens when energy costs go way up. Is it inflationary for everything else or is it not inflationary for everything else? I think the empirics will back up that energy on its own, because it is so volatile in price, you rarely see the full offset that you're talking about there as far as oil prices go up, gas prices go up, and therefore prices for other goods will go down leaving all if we fix everything else as all else equal, that's what happens. What ends up happening is Oil prices year over year are pretty correlated with headline inflation year over year. It's not necessarily the case that oil is being passed through to other categories of inflation such that I need oil, so therefore the cost of other goods goes. Yeah, like transportation or something. You know, if if you're a, I don't know, if you're an airline or something, well, the cost of, you know, the cost of flying those planes goes up, and so therefore you raise airline ticket prices or something like that. Sometimes you see some of those effects like jet fuel prices going up right now. They've gone up quite a bit. Probably have some relevance for airfares. Other things matter for airfares probably more, but jet fuel is a pretty important input. Target 
just released that, hey, we have higher diesel costs. Diesel's also spiked up quite a bit. Right. But they're deciding, actually, we see a rotation where more people are spending on the essentials and are not spending on other items. So we're going to try and have to lower our inventory around discretionary consumer items and find ways to manage that, which might come in the form of lower prices. But in the aggregate, <laughs> which is the kind of common right. uh, economics. Energy promise, prices go up, everything goes up. And energy prices go the up, the index goes up. The, right. And so the average goes up just because of that alone. Okay. I would say in the 70s, it was actually really important that story you talked about first, which was oil was a pretty important input for generating electricity to generate the goods you want. And so that's a story that was pretty important. Now, we moved away from that after the 70s. Oh, so it matters less now. Yes. And so, like, natural gas matters more. Coal mattered a lot more in, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. But we've changed the electricity source. That's the primary baseload for producing goods in the U.S. and China, wherever else. But oil was really important until that point. And so you see that if electricity goes up, well, that's pretty important for a lot of goods and services. And how businesses manage that varies by the sector by sector, demand conditions. Sometimes businesses can push costs through to prices. And some businesses say it's not worth it. I'm going to lose too much market share. Scanner, there's another point you make in your research about how monetary policy can affect different people in different ways. So, for example, right now, the Fed is obviously raising interest rates to try to slow down the economy and therefore to tamp down inflation. But in doing so, it might end up affecting low-income workers differently than high-income workers. And this is an idea I've come across in other research as well, but I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on that. I think what we see pretty reliably is that in tighter labor markets when employment is higher and maybe say wage growth in general is a little bit higher, this distribution tends to actually be more favorable for those who are lower end of the wage spectrum. And so people who are lower wage tend to see their wages grow, especially when you think about how employment grows, who's being brought in from the margins. The Fed did a bunch of analysis of this in 2019 and 18 and kind of came to the conclusion that actually we're pulling in people who are from marginalized communities, more economically depressed communities for a long time and are only starting to see signs of progress. And so that is kind of an egalitarian part of if you are able to influence the labor market through monetary policy to have tighter labor markets, which is to say greater levels of employment and maybe some of higher levels of nominal wage growth, that's a egalitarian mechanism. The part we don't have as much clarity on is distributionally. How does it matter for prices, right? Prices and who's benefiting and losing from prices. I mean, what, how inflation ends up affecting like people who are at different parts of the income spectrum, Yes. Right? So typically, people who are of lower income spend a lot more on rent, spend a lot more on food. On the other hand, something between lower to low middle income people spend a lot more on gas and gasoline. Typically, stuff that's inelastic in, in nature, so like home heating, energy services, so utility, electricity, that's something that if you're poorer, you're going to spend more on those things. So those constraints really matter. Are those constraints necessarily something that the monetary policy always has great influence over is a question we can discuss and debate. But I think that's actually really important to keep in mind because if people have higher income, they have a little more diversity in what they can spend on. And they so they don't necessarily see the food and energy costs necessarily bite them quite as much or even rent, right? Yeah. Jay Powell, the current Fed chair, was asked recently about his thoughts on the idea that a lot of the current inflation seems to be caused by these big global shocks like the Ukraine-Russia war, which certainly has contributed to higher food and energy prices. 
And since those problems are about supply, or as the Fed controls demand, so what's the right response? And what what Powell said was that actually the Fed has to take supply as a given, precisely because the Fed doesn't have much influence over it, so that if there's less supply... Well, then if the Fed wants to avoid too much inflation, then it has to adjust its policies to reduce demand to avoid that inflation. Uh, And so in other words, it has to do what it's doing right now, which is raising interest rates pretty aggressively. All of which is to say that he seemed a little resistant to the idea that the Fed should be patient and to not rush to slow down the economy to reduce inflation, which, full disclosure, a more patient approach is my preferred policy. And listeners can hear last week's episode to understand more on why that is. I'm not saying that the Fed should not be raising interest rates at all. I just would prefer less of an aggressive approach. But let me just stop there and ask your view, uh, Skanda, on Jay Powell's point that the Fed has to take supply as a given. Yeah, I think I remember precisely that response where I think he said there is plenty to do on demand. And I think they were trying to say, well, let's if we try to say the percentage of contribution to this big inflationary episode. How much of it is supply? How much of it is demand? You bring in plenty of economists here, they'll tell you different attributions. Hopefully, the intellectually honest people will say there's a little bit of demand, at least, and there's at least a little bit of supply. But hopefully, there's some acknowledgement that both matter. I would probably be more prominently on the side of there's some pretty clear supply-related issues that matter, and which the Fed, if they tried to offset 100%, say, the Ukraine-Russia shock in terms of its implications for oil prices and some of the reliable ways that oil prices and then we layer on natural gas prices and food prices are going to lead to, like, higher inflation. The Fed, could they offset that? Theoretically, yes. It would take a huge recession to be able to do that. Um, it would have to require them to raise rates so much that labor incomes were contracting. And that, that contraction of labor incomes is almost assuredly going to coincide with recessionary outcomes in which people who are at the margins, are going to miss out. When you refer to a 100% offset, you mean that inflation is obviously going to be high because of higher oil prices, and that's going to drive inflation up by a lot. And so for the Fed to offset that higher inflation by slowing down the economy by enough to keep the prices of other goods low, so other goods that are not oil, the Fed would have to really raise rates, I mean, just really aggressively hike rates by so much that the economy would end up in a possibly really terrible recession. And that's going to harm the most vulnerable workers the most. I think that's that's the story. I think that what's probably even more important than patience is adaptability. Because monetary policy has these sort of time-varying effects on the economy. Sometimes Fed policy really does bite. I think we saw versions of that in 2015 and 16. I think we saw versions of that in 2018, 19. Like financial market actors get very panicky and business decision makers can also get particularly panicky. The real problem is their policy actions should be able to adapt to new phenomena that are also going to depress demand. They're trying to tighten financial conditions, but all sorts of things matter for what financial conditions are and how they're going to affect business decision making. So there's going to have to come a point where they're going to have to adapt. That might be in two weeks. That might be in five months. That might be in a year. And so that is the part that's pretty important from right now because there are these shocks, how they transmit themselves through the system. It's going to have an outsized impact on inflation in the near term. But how much to offset that and how much to offset that over time Is it better to have a really sharp recession today 
Or should we be aiming for something that's a more well-behaved slowdown, right? Yeah, a more casual, gradual slowdown and ideally leading to an economy that maybe slows down so that inflation also goes down, but an economy that still keeps growing and at least avoids a recession. I have another question. There's an old idea that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. That's the phrase, long and variable lags. And this is the idea that if the Fed announces a decision on interest rates today, the effect it has on the economy won't really be felt until nine or 12 months from now, maybe even a little longer than that. Some people are starting to wonder whether monetary policy actually works faster now than when that phrase was first, you know, created and when it first applied. So what do you think? So I have a nuanced answer here where I'd say the monetary policy actually has pretty quick effects on one, financial conditions. And with the slight lag, business decision-making, right? So headcount, capital expenditures, these are all things that if, let's say we see a stock market crash from here of another 20%, mm-hmm. businesses are going to change their minds about a lot of things. Um, and that's something that the Fed should be cognizant of. How it affects prices is actually something that takes a long time, especially rent. Rent is kind of this critical indicator. It's really chunky weight in CPI. Yeah, the CPI, by the way, is the Consumer Price Index, uh, which is one of the main ways that we measure inflation. And what you're saying here is that rent is a big component of CPI, which I guess is understandable because a lot of people spend a lot of money on rent. And so if rent goes up by a lot, then the CPI is also going to go up by a lot. And rent inflation lags for some quirky methodological reasons I will not bore your listeners <laughs> with. But it just just trust me that it's a pretty well-documented fact that what the labor market does today isn't going to fully have its impact on rent CPI today or even tomorrow, but will have an impact in 12 to 18 months. Okay. And that is important to just be cognizant of that the effects of financial conditions on demand today, you should not expect that to have an instantaneous impact on inflation or underlying inflation today either. If there really is a recession that's happening today, I do think you probably see a big correction in oil prices. So maybe there's some signals from that. But generally speaking, it takes time for this stuff to filter through to prices. If you think about it, who are the people within businesses who really care about their like stock price or financial conditions more generally? We're talking about CEOs and CFOs. Mm-hmm. Think about Home Depot or Amazon. Who are the people who are saying prices? Like how are price algorithms structured? That's actually a pretty complicated question and something that a lot of smart people are thinking about in those firms. But I don't think they're going to be like super focused on what the Fed's doing today or tomorrow to be able to actually decide that question. So, so, that's, so maybe it works now on short, medium, and long-term and variable lags. I, I think <laughs> long and variable lags for inflation makes sense. Short and slightly less variable lags makes more sense for, for, for economic activity. Af- for the and, things that affect inflation eventually. Okay, yes, that's yeah. interesting. Um, another question. A lot of people have said that the Fed's 2% target is kind of arbitrary and that it would be fine if the target was instead 4% annual inflation. Uh, And that what matters is that the Fed actually hits the target. That's what matters for stability, so that people and businesses can make plans better because they have a better sense of what's coming. And also that if inflation is higher, then on average, interest rates will also be higher. And that can be good because there's more room for the Fed to then lower interest rates to fight a recession 
when a recession comes. And I want to be clear, people aren't talking about higher inflation like where inflation is right now, but just like 4% instead of 2%. Um, but in general, what do you think about that idea that the Fed could raise its inflation target and that that would be good, that would be fine? So the Fed adopted its own inflation target. It kind of set its own rules in January 2012. And they decided on a particular indicator for inflation, which is not CPI. And they decided on 2% at that time. Mind you, the statute, the, the law that actually guides the Fed's dual mandate was passed in 1978. The Fed didn't do anything to sort of formalize any of that stuff. And Congress, to be also fair, didn't actually set forth any guidelines about, hey, here are the targets we'd like you to hit. This is what stable inflation means, This right? is what stable inflation means. This is what maximum employment can or should mean. You got none of that. And so the Fed has had an ability to set its own target. And even then, it's sort of struggled. I find the notion of an inflation target itself, I think it's totally legitimate for sort of Congress or the, even the president to some extent. I mean, obviously within reason and within the spirit of separation of powers to at least weigh in on, we should have like democratically decided decisions on these things. What's the goals here? What are the goals of policy? The Fed said that 2% is their target. Whether they actually go for 4% or 5%, I think kind of has to be a function of like, what do people want? I think people don't like inflation. I think that's a pretty safe. Uh, that's definitely <laughs> been determined safe. recently. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah I, I think it's a pretty safe claim. I think people also don't like unemployment. People don't like the risk of precarious working conditions. Um, right now, we have a lot of things to say positively about the labor market right now. I think we don't have a lot of positive things to say about inflation. Um, and it's getting that trade-off right and how to say, especially if we could actually allocate which mechanisms are Within the Fed's control, the Fed actually influences a lot of incomes and spending and that, that trajectory. How that influences prices really does vary, as I said. And so for me, I actually, I'm not, I'm not totally sold on this whole notion of if they hit their inflation target, then everyone's going to plan better. I'm not convinced that's like a doable thing. And even if it's doable, in the end, businesses and households borrow the nominal interest rate. Like their contracts and their balance sheets are actually funded by what's like the nominal rate of growth in their revenues or in their earnings or in their wages, that matters for spending decisions. Yeah. So in other words, what you're saying here is that it's the actual interest rate, the actual amount of money that people make that end up determining how they act, how they choose to spend their money. It's not the amount that they make adjusted for inflation. So that's what you mean when you say that what matters is nominal wages Nominal, of course, means not adjusted for inflation, and that's what matters. Your wages not adjusted for inflation. And there is a certain canard that I think exists among a lot of economists, but not all by any means, who think that everyone thinks in terms of like the borrowing cost for apples and bananas and as if like we can have real interest rates. Inflation-adjusted interest rates are what matter. It's like inflation-adjusted interest rates only matter to the extent that inflation is a good proxy for your own income growth. Right. So people talk about stories of price spiral, prices spiraling out of control. But like in order for inflation to keep going up and up and up, there's got to be a funding source that's able to spend the money to be able to actually keep those prices going up. If actually my my prices are if prices are going up and my funding source isn't going up, I'm going to be financially constrained. I can't afford it. I got to balk at that price and I have to yeah. <laughs> actually like put my money away and I can't actually spend it on um, what I want to spend it on. And then businesses have to adjust accordingly. So that funding source is pretty important for all yeah. the inflation stories we tell, I would say. Yeah. And also, this is by way of explaining that your preferred variable for the Fed to target 
is not actually this balance between full employment and stable inflation. It's something called gross labor income, which we've talked about here today. So we're not going to get into this like separate idea, but sure, everything sure. you just said was, I think, a justification for doing that instead. I, I'd like the Fed to focus on what it can more proximately control in the real economy, which is income growth, spending growth. That's the stuff that the Fed has a lot of traction on. Man, inflation is actually really weird. I can t- talk to you all day about like <laughs> all these different prices that could change for reasons that have nothing to do with the Fed, nothing to do with the business cycle, yeah. and can still matter for the aggregate index itself. Yeah. Last question. What have you changed your mind about uh, in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic and all of the extraordinary economic experimentation that we've seen? I think the part that I'm trying to be most introspective about is we really do need both, I don't say modeling, it's even just more information and thoughtfulness about, everyone wants to talk about the supply side, the too few goods part. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually the most interesting part and where you can actually point to some very tangible areas where production has been taken offline or capacity has been taken offline. Um, it could be in China, it could be in the US, um, depending on the sector you're talking about. And we lack a real richness of ability to discuss that. I think especially macroeconomists, where it's sort of, Shorthand is this is aggregate supply. Well, what is aggregate supply made of? It's like machines and apples and oil and this sort of heterogeneity that like that's what it's made up of. And you can't actually count that up into like an aggregate supply variable. It's actually when certain markets get tight and get inelastic, auto prices can soar. And your ability to describe that well, that's a problem that's like pretty unique, but it's also like something that's actually more representative of a lot of the goods shortages and goods price inflation we've seen. And we lack a certain texture and understanding of that. I mean, I'd even sort of go one step further. Things like the pandemic and how that influenced the supply side are things that people have talked about in rough terms about willingness to work, which I don't think is actually the thing that's like mattered, but it's lockdown policies, how much that changes lead times for manufactured goods and things like producing steel or producing semiconductors or aluminum. These These are things that are still reported as being in persistent shortage. Why is that? There's all sorts of things that are mattered to the supply side, and it's not just labor. It's things like time, technology, physical capacity. And that's part that I think I am trying to to really think that these are areas that I feel we all need to kind of get more educated, more knowledgeable about, and actually be able to describe how industry works at a better level. Excellent. Skin Amarnath, uh, tell everybody where they can find your work and the work of Employ America, please. You can find our work at employamerica.org, and you can also see we're a very Twitter-native organization, so you can follow myself, at Irving Swisher. At Irving Swisher. Yes. Okay, which is a take on the famous economist Irving Fisher. That's right. Okay. Back when I was more of an uh, <laughs> league pass uh, NBA uh, junkie. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's where the swish comes from. I love it. Uh, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. Thank really you for having me. And that's our show for today. You can find links to Skanda's writing and the work at Employ America in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please also leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us directly at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week.